Win at Work and Life with Nikki Bush is the podcast where you and I explore what it means to win at both work and life. Today, you get to choose how to create a life of meaning and self-expression that includes both your work and life outside the office with your family. In this podcast, I'll be discussing the nuts and bolts of neuroplasticity to decrease stress and increase performance with Dr. John Molador. Dr. John is Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. And I have been privileged to hear him speak on a number of occasions in the last two years. And I'm always fascinated with what he has to say and how generously he shares his knowledge and insights. Dr. John holds the Certified Speaking Professional Accreditation from the National Speakers Association in the US, one of just over about 700 speakers in the world who have it. Oh, and I count myself lucky to have one of those too. So he was president of the Global Speakers Federation in 2020-2021, and he's also a past president of the National Speakers Association of America. And earlier this year, he was the recipient of the very coveted CAVIT Award, which celebrates and honors those members whose speaking careers demonstrate the spirit of sharing, guiding, and inspiring other professional speakers. The CAVIT Award is the NSA's most cherished award. So congratulations, Dr. John. I know being in the speaking profession and being part of the Global Speakers Federation, this is really such a special award and it's not something you can work towards. It's a peer review and it's a lifetime's work of, of giving and sharing. And I know that our listeners really are going to experience that real spirit of Cavett in you during this podcast. So thank you for joining us. Excited to be here. And what I'm really excited about is the whole concept of uh, work and life. And that so many times we separate those just like we separate our brains from our bodies. And they're not, they're not separated. They're in, you know, they're linked, they're integrated. And so it's so important uh, what you're doing and trying to get word out about how knowledge uh, experiences wisdom then can tie together for both one's work and life. And I love it. Oh, I'm so glad. So it's a privilege to have you with us. And just to tell you that our listeners today vary from self-employed entrepreneurs to educators and people leading and managing teams in the corporate arena. And I know you work on the fascinating frontier of understanding the brain and how we can help our brains to operate optimally. So there's that big term of neuroplasticity. Why do we need to understand some of the basics and what are some of those basics that we need to understand to win at both work and life? So here's the most exciting thing from my perspective in terms of the neuroplasticity. This is basically the brain's ability to wire and rewire itself. It's the only organ in our body that can do that. And it's so fascinating. So it's a version of what we would call you can teach an old dog new tricks, so you can learn. And we see so many people go, well, I, I can't, you know, I, you know, I'm too old, or I'm too this, or I'm too that, or I'm not enough of this, or not enough of that. And so the beauty of the brain is it can change. So the neuroplasticity is the plastic part, meaning it can be molded, it can be changed. Now there is a set procedure that you have to go through to change it. 
And so that's a, some of the basics that you're referring to. So when we talk about neuroplasticity, it's about the learning, unlearning and relearning, the wiring, the pruning. And I have some of the basics of that because of my involvement with education and early learning. So we know that when um, children are really young, of course, the brain is more plastic and more elastic. But that doesn't mean um, that you can't still learn later on, like you were saying, teaching old dogs new tricks. And in fact, in this very fast changing world, isn't it fantastic that we understand neuroplasticity and, and that with every change and every transition, our brains actually have to adapt and can adapt. Exactly. And that's the beauty of it. And, and like you said, it can adapt. And for many of us, like what we are taught is what you were born with is what you got for the rest of your life. And this is just not true. It's not true. And so because it can change, it opens up all kinds of possibilities. Now, I know that you're the expert on parenting and, and kids and, and uh, raising kids properly. The fascinating thing is before age 25, the brain is really easy to change. After age 25, give or plus, give or plus or minus one year, it's a little bit harder. And so you have to go through some stages. For kids, that's why we would also say, expose kids to a wide variety of educational opportunities. Um, let them sort of experience things because that's what then, as they get older, those will start to get locked into place. Learning a foreign language, very, very important when you're younger, much easier than when you're older. Uh, being exposed to the arts, being exposed to sports, being exposed to a whole variety. Uh, I would say parents should be encouraging their kids to sample as much as possible. The reason being is that in their brains, their neurons get to sample other neurons to figure out what goes together, what doesn't. As you get older, some of those connections get glued into place. They're glia, what they call glia cells, and they get glued in. Hence, a little bit harder to change after age 25. Doesn't mean you should stop, though. You should always, well, it's my bias. I think you should always be learning. You should always be growing. Um, it just, as a leader, as an entrepreneur, as a parent, it's fascinating to me that you seem more willing or people seem more willing to change their clothing style, maybe their automotive that they're driving, but they won't change their brain. It's like, and yet that should be changing just as new styles sort of evolve or come into play. But again, sorry, I got on the soapbox there. I'll jump off the soapbox. I totally agree. I think you make a really important point that we don't value what's inside our cranium enough and if we are learning and growing consciously then it's a little bit like with the body the body is the architect of the brain so motion will change your brain but also when we move our body it's like we're oiling and greasing our joints so what you're talking about in terms of learning and growing in the brain and the neuroplasticity is a little bit like keeping that brain fully functional and oiled and greased well, and absolutely. And so we know in terms of then say dementia, that if, if one is not using their brain, you're going to have a higher incident possibly of dementia, Alzheimer falling within that category. And it's like, 
it's using these new connections. It, it's, it's building the, the brain and, and that's what you wanna be doing constantly. And yet what's so crazy is here this 1.4 kilogram mass that's inside our skull, we don't think too much about it. Or we just assume, what's your brain for? Well, it's to think or it's to feel. Well, actually it's much, much more than that. It's always managing and budgeting your body expenditure. So it's trying to figure out how much energy am I gonna need right now? How much energy at the end of the day? And so it's always managing that budget, which that creates sometimes some conflict and stress, especially as you know, doing more and more kind of Zoom and not having human connections, it creates probably even more stress. And yet we don't think about what is the, what's the primary function of our brain? And in some ways, what's so cool is the brain is a prediction machine. So you encounter someone and your brain is immediately trying to predict what's going to happen next. What's this? And so it's always in a prediction uh, mode. And it's like, also like trying scenario to scenario planning. You, you know, it could be scenario A, B, C, or D. And this happens in a nanosecond, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's incredible. And so the, the visual cortex interprets images in like 13 milliseconds. So when we say first impressions, for example, that's because the brain is calculating that you see someone, what they're wearing, uh, their height, you know, if they wear glasses, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The brain immediately is then uh, processing that image 13 milliseconds. Wow. Wow. So take us through the five step process for neuroplasticity, because you've been alluding to the fact that there's a way to do things to learn unlearn, and relearn. Exactly. So the number one is we say, first, there has to be awareness. If there's no awareness, there's going to be no learning or no change. So for example, uh, a positive one, let's say you want to learn a new language. So the awareness is pretty obvious. It's like, I don't know how to speak another language. And so your awareness is, I would like to learn uh, another language. Then there has to be some agitation. And so the agitation is like, oh, this is going to be hard. And so the brain's always calculating, you know, how is this going to happen? How long is it going to take? What's the outcome? And so usually there's agitation. You need some agitation. And I'll come back to then some of the, the chemical, uh, what happens inside you. But, but you have to be agitated. A little. I love the agitation one. So we're definitely going to talk a little more about that. So as an entrepreneur, let's say you want to start doing a, a business in, in another country, and it's like, oh, okay, awareness. Well, I probably need to learn a language. And the agitation is, oh, this is going to be hard. This isn't going to be easy. You get a little bit agitated. Then what you need is attention. And think of this as focus. Then you're going to focus in. What are the key steps that you want to take? Well, maybe then it's uh, where do you do? And again, I have no, no money stake in Babel or uh, any of the other uh, how, to, how to learn a foreign language. But it's like you might choose that or you might go to a, a university or you might go to night school to learn then a second language. Next step is then reward. You need to be rewarded because you have to keep going. You should typically reward yourself in small incremental steps. And then as a quick side note, be willing to make mistakes, make them early and often. 
but then reward yourself for each time that you do something correct. So now you've mastered a couple words, again, the positive learning another language. And then here's the one that was mind boggling to me. Then you have to have rest or sleep. We used to think that neuroplasticity occurred while you were actually learning or doing it. We now know that uh, neuroplasticity occurs when you sleep or when you rest. So we've heard for years, oh, take a nap. Naps are good for you. you. Hear this over and over. Actually, there's now real proof that naps actually help the brain. Here's another side note. Sleep is probably the best and cheapest therapy that you can do because it cleans your brain out. The brain is always making these connections. There's chemicals. And when you sleep, you clear the brain out. It also allows the brain then to process the stuff that you've learned. So again, we start with awareness, then agitation, attention, reward, and process. So since in the United States, our retirement is called AARP, that's the acronym I use to remember it because most people over 25 have some type of retirement plan that they're trying to do. Now there's chemicals that go with each one of these stages. So when you have the agitation, that'll be adrenaline or epinephrine, depending on where you, what part of the world you are. So uh, in more Western, we, we talk about adrenaline, more Eastern is probably epinephrine. They're the same. They're just produced in different parts of the body. From the, so that's the agitation. So adrenaline, as you know, is going to be your fight, flight, or freeze. It's like, oh, I got to do, you know, oh, that agitation, and, and, and that's good, right? The, the attention or focus is then acetylcholine. So this allows us then to focus in on what has to be done. Reward is then dopamine. Many people have heard about dopamine, kind of the reward chemical, if you will. And then the, the rest or sleep, that's, that's what it is. It's rest or sleep. And the other thing, again, side note, most people don't know when you sleep, you get paralyzed. Oh, wow. So, so what happens about sleep apnea, is that the paralysis or is that something different? That's something different. So the sleep, when you go to sleep, you go through, you drop down through different stages and then it, you get paralyzed. Throughout the day, your brain is always calculating. It's calculating. So let's say you have to uh, write a report or you have to write a proposal for someone. So the awareness is there. It's like, oh, I got to write. Then the agitator is like, oh, I got to sit down. I got to make sure I don't look at my email. I don't need to answer any calls. Agitation. Then you want to focus in. Then, of course, you want to reward it. So the brain is always calculating. How long is it going to take? What's the outcome? Uh, how am I going to do this? Well, when you sleep, those are all gone. So there's no, how long is this going to take? How is it going to happen? How long, you know? That's all gone. That's why in your dreams, you can fly, <laughs> you can <laughs> float, you can do, but it also paralyzes you so that you're probably not thrashing about, especially if you have a partner, <laughs> you're probably not doing any harm to them. And then at various times, because it goes through these different cycles, it will release you a little bit. And that's typically then when you roll over or you shift positions. And then as you drop, drop back down to the stages, then there's you're paralyzed so that you don't move. I've got a question for you on sleep. 
when you fall asleep, sometimes you have that experience of falling or dropping. And you can even get a fright and wake up because you feel like you've dropped like a level physically. Is that actually a mirror image of what's happening in your head? Absolutely, because what's happening is, again, all those restrictions during the day are gone. And so the mind is, is no longer bound by, you know, these uh, durations and what's the outcome and that's all gone. So then the brain is free to then kind of associate and then, yes, there's dropping. Or you've had instances where you're sleeping and your dream feels so real, you, you actually wake up and, and it's like, okay, well, what's going on? Again, it's just brain kind of clear some stuff out. So what you were saying just before you talked about the dream is the associations that the brain can make when it's sleeping, which is why I'm assuming that you could wake up in the morning having had a problem the day before that you couldn't solve and you wake up in the morning and you have the solution. Absolutely. So that's the brain started processing it. And a lot of times we would say before you, let's say you have an issue that you've been thinking about before you go to sleep, just say, all right. I would probably, I'd do it this way. Go, all right. So John, your little brain here, why don't you, why don't you think about this and mull it over and come up with a solution for me in the morning? So I'll often just, I, I think of it psychologically as I throw it to the back of my head and basically say, all right, I'm going to go about my business. You process it. And then in the morning, come up with some idea. So what I like about you, what you've just said is you go about your business and I'll go about mine. I think we have a little bit of a, a, a misunderstanding about our brain because the general thought is if I plant that thought in my head, I'm going to worry all night and I'm going to stay awake. Do you think we fall into that trap? What I'm thinking of is you've just made an awareness statement of I'll do my thing, you do your thing, brain. Exactly. And so you can, you can then lead or influence your own brain rather than perseverating or fixating or going over and over. And we see this a lot. Probably there's a personality difference here. There's a theory that, for example, introverts and extroverts, how they process information, especially right before they go to sleep, is very different. And so that's where I would suggest let the thought come through. Don't fight it because if you fight it, 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 you're sort of, you're focusing on it. Let it go through and then say, all right, I will deal with this later or I will process it later. And so it's just a little probably psychological trick that you can do. Okay. So if somebody, for example, had a big presentation tomorrow or a, a student had an exam, what do they do with the anxiety or the nervous tension before they go to bed? So what I would probably say is that you want to reward yourself for what you've done, that you, if you have the presentation. And so again, let's, let's be clear. I'm assuming you've put in some time studying or you've put in some time putting together your presentation. Because if you haven't, then the anxiety is real. <laughs> and some might say harshly, you probably deserve it because you didn't put in the work. Now, that's a little harsh. So let's say you didn't have enough time because you had 10,000 other obligations and you didn't get to put enough time in. Then what you want to be doing is sending messages to yourself, probably repetitive messages, 
along the lines of, I have this. I know this. I can do this. And so you want to do repetitive message because then your cells, if you will, starts to eavesdrop on your words or messages. They also eavesdrop if it's like, oh my, I'm in, oh, I'm in bad shape. This is terrible. I didn't. It'll eavesdrop on that. And then the brain basically is kind of lazy. So it's going to follow probably whatever it is you said because it then becomes a prediction machine. And so you've seen the same thing. People talk about, well, what you feed your brain, you know, is what you become type of thing. Well, that's a little cheesy for me, but uh, in terms of the neuroscience, you would say that this is a repetitive message. It becomes a memory. The brain remembers trying to predict what's going to happen next. And the way it does prediction is it looks to your memory to see what's there to try to predict. And so if your message is, I got this, I'll be okay, get out of my way, let my, you know, you know this, you know, then is speaking, for example, it's like, I've done this before. Yes, there may be new material, but I'm fine. I'm confident. The brain's going to listen to that. Yeah. So it's a little bit like for us speakers, that little bit of performance anxiety just before you get up on the stage is actually okay. As long as the, the, the underlying thoughts are, I've got this, I've done it before. Uh, this neurological pathway actually exists. It's a well-worn pathway. And so therein lies that little word called trust, uh, trusting in your neural processing, in the wiring of your brain, that what you've done over and over again, which is why repetition in learning is so vitally important, that those neurological pathways are so well oiled and greased with myelin uh, that they are firing on all cylinders and firing quickly and efficiently, which goes back to what we were talking about in terms of learning. Uh, because if you don't keep learning, what happens in the brain is that it prunes itself because it's an, looking at energy levels. So basically, when you're learning something, the brain has to lay out a brand new neural network, and then it prunes off the pieces it doesn't need. So if you've ever watched a child learning uh, how to walk, you know, their tongue may be stuck over in their cheek, the, you know, one left arm, right arm may be up. And then, so again, the brain is sampling all these other neurons. And remember, let me tie it back to this. Brain is only, we talk about the brain, but the brain is part of your nervous system. And so your nervous system is then what we're really talking about is your brain, your spinal cord, then the connections from the brain and spinal cord to all your organs, and then the connection from all your organs back to your brain and spinal cord. So it's in this continuous communication loop. And so as a child learning to walk, you know, the arm may flail, the tongue may be stuck in the cheek, you know, they may wink, they may, who knows, they may. And so the brain is sampling all these different neural connections to figure out what's appropriate or not. Over time, then the phrase is you have part of it tuned and pruned. So the tuning is then that making those connections that are important and then pruning off or you know removing the connections that no longer work and so think of the pruning also that occurs during the day but go back to sleep the pruning if you will all the cuttings get sort of dissolved degraded 
Yes. Because it's and a so chemical it gets, process, isn't it? It's a chemical dissolution. Exactly. And so it basically cleans. That's why I'm saying your, your cheapest form of, of therapy <laughs> for mental health is sleep. And again, let's look at what we've done in COVID. Our sleep has been disrupted and it's created havoc. Uh, we have stress and we're not, you know, typically we're not releasing or cleansing or cleaning out your brain. And that's what you need to be doing. Well, you've got some lovely ideas, I know, on sleep and using counting and things like that to help us to de-stress so that we actually get that quality sleep. I think these are really important to share with our audience. So one of the ones that uh, I don't know if you were brought up with this is like, oh, you can't sleep. The, the counting sheep that you have <laughs> this growing up, it doesn't work. So don't count sheep, okay? So so we would say um, the one the one research I heard about is actually counting sheep. It made it harder for people to go to sleep. But the one, the couple that seems to work is one is called four, seven, eight. You um, you breathe in for four, count of four. You hold it for seven, and then you exhale to the count of eight. So four, seven, eight. So breathe in. Uh, for four, hold for seven, exhale for eight. And so we think what's happening on that, um, it comes out of a yoga practice. And so it's starting to, to calm the mind. But we also think maybe from a physiological, because that when you have to hold it, you're actually shunting off then oxygen. And so the brain has to then make sure that it controls and you know saves all the oxygen. And Basically, it's saving it for the brain. And because it's now not going possibly all the way through your system, then the body starts to relax. So just meditation is another way of doing four, seven, eight. The one that I like and the one that is kind of interesting is I start at 99. So I breathe in. Then when I exhale, then I go down by one. So I I start at 99, I breathe in, exhale, 98, breathe in, exhale, 97. So I'm going to start counting down on my exhale. Now, if a thought comes through, I let it come through, but then I have to go back to 99, <laughs> start over. So I've gotten all the way down to like into the 60s. And then the thought comes through and oh, then it's like, goodness. I got to go back to 99. So then the brain kind of goes, it gets a little again, using the word agitated. <laughs> so it starts to focus then or attend to my breathing. I probably slow my breathing down a little bit. And so what I'm actually doing is starting to relax my whole body. So once again, so never... talking about the brain-body connection, the brain with the physiology, as you are slowing down in the brain, you are instructing the body to start slowing down. So your heart rate should be dropping. All those things should be dropping. There are some other ones where you count up and you count down. And I've been practicing some of those and experimenting with them, even not just for sleep, but at a, in a moment of stress um, during the day, uh, say you take a comfort break from your desk and your brain is really stressing. I've done the counting up to 100 in twos and then counting backwards in twos or threes or fives. 
And what I find is that it helps me to change track to get off that little stress roller coaster that I'm on. And it helps me to shift out of that kind of rut. Tell us about that. How does that actually work? Is that a form of agitation? It's probably less agitation is to then accessing different parts of the brain so that if the emotional centers, and so quick side note, uh, we've all heard, in fact, I was even taught that we had three brains. We had the reptilian brain, the emotional brain, and the thinking brain. It's wrong. It's just, it's just not, we don't, we don't have those, but it's been around forever. Almost every leadership class talks about it. Uh, you in leader role, leadership roles have probably even said, oh, my reptilian brain took over or you're being too emotional or all that. Now we have emotional centers. We have autonomic nervous system. We have all these, we have thinking centers. And so if you are agitated or stressed, then there are certain parts of the brain that are activated. When you go to the numerical side of things, you're now activating another part of the brain. We know that there's communication between both the hemispheres, but we also know we think now, so there's fibers that connect both the hemispheres, the corpus callosum. We think this is more like a, a gated bridge. So in other words, both sides aren't always active. It may go back and forth. And so if all of a sudden you, you're, agitate, you're agitated or you're stressed about something, by then doing the counting, you're now going to activate another part of the brain and it may balance out then that agitation. Would the word distraction be applicable here, that you're distracting your brain from your current pain, your source of distress, and you are shifting it through distraction to another place. Um, I don't know that I'd use the word distraction. I would probably, I like your word shifting. That makes sense, is that you're going to shift because the shifting then is also what we would call locus of control. You're doing it versus distraction tends, to, I think most of us think of as distractions as uh, outside of us versus inside of us. So from a, a locus of control, you taking control, I think makes, makes a lot of sense that you're going to shift your focus or attention, I think is versus, oh, I'm distracted. And then I have to go back versus yeah. shifting focus. Yeah. And then here's another one, which we talked about, which you may recall, which I think is so cool. You're stressed. You want to take sort of this break, right? Do the physiological sigh. Now, this is the contrast to the psychological side where somebody says something, you roll your eyes and you're like, oh, there, you know, you think there goes Nikki again, you know, you know, so the physiological side is two inhales through your nose, the second one being a little bit longer than the first, and then a strong exhale. So it's. And what you're doing is you're offloading carbon dioxide from your lungs. When carbon dioxide starts to build up in your lungs, it creates automatic stress. When you are stressed, you're probably building up carbon dioxide. So the physiological side allows you to offload that, and then there's a calming feeling to it. 
Now, uh, I've read some where it's like it only takes two. Let's say um, I'm out walking and then I, I'm thinking about something. So walking, again, exercising, movement, you talked about that. another way, another great way to combat stress, anxiety, et cetera. So let's say I'm out walking and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I remember something and I'm starting to get stressed. I will then do the physiological sigh when I'm out walking. And I'll do that often up to five times just to offload carbon. And all of a sudden it's like, I'm just kind of back walking. I, I use that physiological sigh when I walk as well. But going back to the four, seven, eight breathing, because I think there might be a connection here. You discussed the four, the, the breathe in for four, the hold for seven, but the exhale for eight is super important and can almost be this, this physiological sigh, because when you've held your breath for seven, you actually really need to get rid of it. And if you can add that sound, it becomes very much like that physiological sigh. And when we are so stressed, what we don't remember to do is to exhale, which is why that diaphragm gets stuck. And we have this shallow breathing um, when we're stressed. So just remembering the exhale um, and this physiological sigh is just such a lovely physical way of making sure you do do the exhale. That's Absolutely. Absolutely. And like you said, when, when we tense up, we tend like, and you, you did it. Um, for those listening, I can actually see Nikki. She, she, she holds in her upper body. And so basically you're holding it then in, in the lungs versus when you see athletes, they don't hold their stress high. Or when you see dancers, they don't hold. It's more when people talk about centering. Well, what are they really talking about? It's probably on the exhale. And it's bringing that calmness, that centering, if you will. Mm. And that's the physiological, like you say, you've offloaded <clears throat> the carbon dioxide, you've, you've expelled stuff versus holding it high. Speakers yeah. are real guilty of that too. When they're stressed, <laughs> they hold it high. And then basically it affects their vocal cords, stress, and people can hear it in their voice. Yeah. So when you're in flow, when you're grounded, when you're centered, you're freeing everything up to connect instead of holding it high. But one more thing on the sleep, going back to sleep and learning and connecting everything. You talked about when we sleep, you know, there's that chemical pruning process and the uh, detoxification, the flushing of the system. But there's another thing with sleep around the learning cycle that most people are unaware of. And that is that your brain replays everything that it's done during the day. So if your child has learned something new, like riding a bicycle or something new in maths class, or you've learned something new on a training course, for example, if you sleep well, you'll get a repetition of the lesson, which further hardwires it into the brain. And why wouldn't we? give our brains the opportunity to do that all over again. And I think a lot of it is because we just don't know this stuff. Absolutely. And then the other thing is, is I think in the sad way, we've created a new diagnosis, sleep anxiety. It's like you're told you should have seven to nine hours of sleep. And so you're thinking, I'm not even getting close to seven hours of sleep or then a lot of people think, well, I'll do it on the weekends or off days. 
So I think we've created this, this thing called sleep anxiety, which is not helpful to people because then you go to sleep going, I, I need my seven hours, but wait a minute. I've gone to bed too late tonight because I had to do all these other tasks and I have to get up early. I'm not going to. So then it creates that, that loop of anxiety. So one thing that we've heard and seen from some research recently is that it's probably equally important to get the same amount of sleep. So let's say you get six and a half hours of sleep. Then just stay with your six and a half. Don't do nine one day and then four the next and then seven and then up and down. It's just it's being consistent probably in the amount of sleep and maybe let's reduce some of the sleep anxiety in terms of that. Um, there's a lot of things that you can do. There's a great book out called Why We Sleep by Dr. Matt Walker. Great book. Busts a lot of the myths. Also says things that you can do. So it's like lower the temperature in the room as, as much as possible. Make it as dark as possible. If you have to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, have red lights on rather than white lights or any lights that come on should be red because it won't activate the brain. Little things like that that can help in the sleep. But it does this, the brain has to process, it tries to process what's happened during your day. Now, granted, there's a gajillion things, that's a technical term, a gajillion things that have happened to you during the day, right? So it can't, it can't do all, but what it's trying to do is figure out which ones are important and which ones aren't. And so, again, before you go to sleep, one way to help the brain is to say, this is important. So as a speaker, here's what I'm doing more and more. I will say to my audiences, Tonight, before you go to bed, before you go to sleep, I want you to think about one thing that you heard during this presentation that you might use to change how you go about speaking, leading, managing, whatever the topic might be. And so one of the things we will say at the end of this podcast is to your audience members is to say, I want you to think about one thing you heard today that you can use in your life. Would that be a similar thing with something like a gratitude diary at the end of the day, where you note down what you're grateful for? Are you then kind of wiring and programming the brain to focus on that stuff instead of the negative stuff? Absolutely. Because again, when you're talking, when you think about it in terms of what we just mentioned, then you're bringing the attention to that. Usually to start your gratitude diary, you have to, there's some agitation. It's like, nothing good's happened to me today. It's been a horrible day. I'm not grateful for anything. Agitation, but you push through it. And then it's like, all right, let's get the journal, you know, get the diary out, the journal out. We're going to open it up. And then we're going to think about one thing and that's the focus. And then you want to reward yourself by saying, you know, that, that was cool. I'm, I am grateful for that. And then as you sleep, you know, you process it. So yes, um, gratitude, huge, huge. And what about the rhythms? You've just spoken about consistency in terms of sleep being important. We've got different rhythms. There's, I think you talk about the circadian rhythm and the ultradian rhythm. So how would understanding these two sets of rhythms help people to win at work and life? 
So one of the things that you can use is obviously circadian. Most everybody's familiar with that circle around day, day, you know, it's the typical 24-hour cycle. Most people are not aware that we have what are called ultradian cycles. And these are roughly 90-minute cycles, and it occurs during when you're awake as well as sleep. And so in terms of then work and life, I'm trying to start to divide my time into these 90-minute blocks. They typically have to go through this whole process. It's like, all right, John, you have to write a proposal for a presentation. And so it's like, oh, okay, I'm aware of it. Now it's like a little agitation. It's like, oh, this blank screen, this blank Word document, what do I do? So then I start to focus in. All right, what other resources do I have? What do I need to do? I start focusing in. So for the first 10 minutes, maybe there's going to be a little agitation. The next 20 minutes are probably going to be really good. 20 to 30 minutes are going to be really good kind of focus and work. Then I'm going to try to reward myself. Toward the end of the 90-minute cycle, my mind's probably going to wander off and it's probably going to want to do something else. And and that's fine. So I kind of follow that cycle. And then I'll start in on another 90-minute cycle. And so I try to make sure I'm balancing that out. You also then can balance it out during your day. So maybe I look at all my emails later on in the day when I know there might be a little bit of blood sugar drop, you know, and I might feel a little, then it's like it's not requiring a lot of effort on my part. So you start to figure out. It might be a version, although I'm not a huge fan of if you're a day person or a night person, it's more of when do you function best, when are you optimal? So if it's in the morning, get to it, you know, that's where you want to be writing your proposals, you know, doing your task list, whatever. Uh, if it's more late in the afternoon and you like that, then that's where you'd want to focus it in. So you want to then try to pay attention to. When do you feel at your, your best? And then try to structure your day. Now, some of, some of you can do that, some of you can't. Where you can, then take advantage of that. So a question around stress. We need a certain amount of pressure and tension in order to perform. And I think your five steps in the neuroplasticity cycle actually speak to that in a way because you know you you're saying you need this awareness right you've got to get this done okay then there's that agitation of that oh and then to actually get going you almost have to build up this a bit like what you know winding an elastic band what what do you do to get yourself going because you know once you've worked out what it is you have to do and you get over that initial inertia are there any tricks that you've got to get into your 90 minute cycle so one of the things that, that I'll do is when the thought hits, I try to do one thing within 20 to 30 seconds of the thought. So now I'm trying to plan it more and more, but let's say I'm going along and it's like, oh, you need to then send in this information. It's like, oh, then I might immediately go to my email, open up the email that requested the information. So if I do something right as the thought hits within that 20 to 30 second time period, I'm more likely to complete the task. Okay. Now to get my- That's a form 
form of reward in a way. You're giving mm-hmm. yourself a form of mental reward because you can cross that point of action off your list. Exactly. I've started it. And then yeah. once I get into it, so for me, like I have to do a lot of designing of presentations, which require a lot of graphic work, uh, design, intellect. Like, oh, sometimes it just feels overwhelming. But then it's like I open it up. I might create then the new document. I might go, oh, I know what your title slide is. So I you know, create the titles. And then once I get going, then the work flows nicely. The other thing you can do when you look at the horizon line, it sort of relaxes your, your mind. This is outdoors, the horizon outdoors, line. Outdoors, go to the window, yes, yep. yep. And then I will then come to my laptop and then I'll bring my focus on a specific area of my, my laptop and just try to visually bring my visual field in because we know that my mental focus follows my visual focus. And by focusing in, then I can actually get going. So it also means that then I try to make sure that the email is not open, it's in the background or actually I minimize it. I don't have my, you know, I'll put the phone off to the side. So I'm trying to minimize again, sort of these external possible distractors and then the focus is going to be specifically here. As you're saying, you know, you need to widen your horizon and then narrow your horizon. I think of myself as a writer of of books. I've written four books now. And my process when I write books is that I come up with the idea, obviously, and you get very excited about that. And then you get into the work of it, which often involves a lot of research. So whether it's documents on a computer or whether it's books that I'm reading, And then I love paper and I love to print pieces of paper. I need to see things in 3D. I'm very visual. So for me, you know, it sometimes doesn't cut it to just read something on a screen. And so when I'm in a creative process, my goodness, my office is a mess, which most people would not think about me uh, because I'm usually quite organized. You know, I present to the world as a very organized, well-packaged person. But you should see my office when I'm writing a book, piles and papers and even on the floor. And then when it all starts coming together, once all the ideas have been developed, but I now need to pull them together, then I tidy everything up and then I narrow my field of focus, exactly what you're saying, which I didn't realize there was some science behind that. And then it all comes together in a neat and tidy pile. And that's my process. And that, that works, like you said, from a neuroscience perspective, it works from a style perspective. And then we would also say that once you've done the narrow focus and you're done, or your Zoom call is done, or your committee meeting is done, or you have the kids sort of packed off to school, go to the window or go outside and broaden your view and let your mind relax. Five minutes, 10 minutes, it's usually enough then basically then to undo the focus, let the brain relax. Mm -hmm. I no longer schedule back-to-back Zoom meetings because as you know, almost everything has become Zoom in terms of how we're communicating and presenting as speakers. So I don't do back-to-back anymore. So when I'm done here, 
I will then go outside or I'll just go to the window and broaden my visual field because remember mental focus then I've also now eased my mental focus because I've broadened the visual field. I've broadened my mental focus and it's relaxing. And you're probably going to do a bit of breathing while you're in that state as well, I'm assuming. The breathing and then what I'm doing more and more of is the hard walking, but that's me. That's um, hard walking. What do you mean by hard walking? Um, that it has to be less than a 15 uh, minute, a mile pace. Okay. So fast walking. Fast walking. Yep. And that's for a number of reasons. I'm assuming to get your heart rate up, to get your blood so pump we, around yes. the, the body, uh, the endorphins, the happiness hormones. You have all those plus that we would also say anything that's heart healthy is then brain healthy. And so obviously the, any type of aerobic the, that's helping is that it's also then pushing fresh oxygen into my brain. Mm. And so for me, I've now gotten the walking down to kind of a repetitive, if you will. I have my, and I know a lot of people like to have different routes. I know my routes. Every, literally, I, you tell me the day I can tell you the route. The reason I've done that is I get the aerobic, I get the heart, I get the brain. It allows me to free associate, to think, to problem solve, to create. And for me, that's just, that's a great time to just slow. I don't have to concentrate anymore on left foot, right foot, you know, or this or that, you know, and every once in a while I'll stumble on something because, you know, I'm not paying attention, but it's, uh, it's sort of like driving. It's become you know, it's reflexive. And then I say to my brain, go ahead and, and free associate, go ahead and solve a problem, go ahead and think about uh, what you might add, you know, what are you going to talk to Nikki about, you know, in the podcast. And so it's kind of like, you know, then I allow, I just allow my, my brain to do that. Yeah. John, thank you for sharing so generously of your time and your wisdom. I know you and I could carry on talking for another couple of hours, but you really have reminded us that we need to challenge our brains to grow, to learn that it's an important part of staying healthy and remaining relevant. And I guess uh, staying young, being young of mind, <laughs> that we need to, to keep agitating and managing our stress response in our brains with sleep, with breathing among others, and yeah, just that, that reminder of consistency that you've told us not to worry if we're not getting the eight or nine hours of sleep. I think many of our listeners are going to be extremely grateful to have heard that. But the word is consistency. And when you've just spoken about how you have a different route on each day of the week, that also speaks to me of consistency. So in a world where we're having to deal with so much disruption and change, we also need to provide the brain with predictability and consistency for a sense of security. And then the novelty and the learning and the growth can take place on top of that foundation. So in a way, I think you've, you've reaffirmed for me that we need to give our brains the foundations of consistency so that they can do all that exciting stuff over and above that. And that our brains are a prediction machine and that they're constantly working in the background 
even when we, we you know, we're not aware of it, that, that they're deciding, the brain is deciding how much oxygen, how much of all those amazing chemicals that you were talking about that I can't even remember half the names of. But there's this whole chemistry going on all of the time. And the, the brain decides where the energy has to go. But we also have a role in our conscious mind to actually shepherd and direct our focus. And we have to remember that that awareness that you spoke about is the key thing in kicking off any growth and any learning process. Are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners and where can they get hold of you? So the best way is let's do it through you. If they want to get hold of me, contact you, then you can contact me and we can go from there. I love talking about the brain. I love sharing some of the neuroscience principles and how it impacts people in leadership roles. You're doing it in, in one of your areas in parenting and all these, it, it's just like you said, it's life. You don't wanna separate work and life. They're, they're, they go hand in hand, just as I will no longer separate mind and body, they go hand in hand. And so for those that are wondering, can they change? The answer is yes. Will it take some time and effort? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. There's just all kinds of benefits from doing that. And I just want to, you know, because you've heard me speak, I just, I love thinking about the brain. I love translating it so that it makes it accessible. And so that's exciting for me. And then I will say it, and then I'll let you wrap, is that, again, I hope people listening in can find one thing that they heard today that that they could possibly use and to think about that before they go to sleep. Thank you, Dr. John Molador, for demystifying the brain for us and really, I guess, normalizing all the things that go on inside our heads. To our listeners, please send through your comments, questions, and topic suggestions to info at nickybush.com. You're invited to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to empower them to win at work and life too.